Welcome to the Cheyenne Vineyard Podcast, bringing you a message of hope for your everyday world. If you'd like to contact us, contact us at info at CheyenneVineyard.com. You can also find out more information about the Cheyenne Vineyard Church at CheyenneVineyard.com. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. Before I get to this morning, um, I think it might be appropriate at this point to share something with you that I read this morning. And uh, how many of you get that sheets given 15 emails? Not too many, a few. Um, <clears throat> well, maybe I'll share it. Okay. By the way, did you figure out what the word was that I was looking for? The word that kept coming to me that I kept being impressed by in all those Christmas songs is the word king. How many times did the word king <coughs> show up in those songs? Excuse me. All right. Um, this morning, Dutch Sheets sent this out. And I just wanted to share it with you. Um, it's titled Prevailing in Prayer in 2019. He says, I am not worried about the opposition we have seen and will see more of in the coming year. We will see more opposition to President Trump and other opposition governmentally. You will see opposition in any way the opposers can bring it. But the opposition will not prevail. The kingdom of God will prevail. The ecclesia will prevail. Truth will prevail. The gospel will prevail. The opposition will experience <clears throat> setback after setback. The church will experience victory after victory. We will see that in another opening, see, we will see that, talking about victory, in another opening on the Supreme Court in 2019. The war will be incredible. However, once again, we will win. The intensity will be more than there was with Kavanaugh, but the victory will be ours. And we will see another conservative pro-life justice put on the court then we will have a 6-3 to three majority. And he quotes James 5.16, the, the effective, <clears throat> fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, or is powerfully effective. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> Just a couple comments about the Supreme Court and the um, great value, great importance of the Supreme Court. In 1962, the Supreme Court ruled that we could no longer pray the 22 little word prayer that students prayed in the classroom. 
1963, they said the Bible couldn't be read in public schools. In 1980, they said the, the Ten Commandments could not be posted in public schools. Children might see them, meditate on them, and even, God forbid, even obey them. <laughs> so, what have we got now? People that don't obey the commandment, thou shalt not kill. So anyway, <clears throat> Father, I pray, this is part of what he's saying, Father, I pray for President Donald J. Trump. He is attacked relentlessly, no matter what he does. He is lied about, and his words are twisted by the media and other government leaders who oppose him until no one is sure what he really said or meant. I pray these moments cause him to see you and your comfort and wisdom. Raise up more Christian intercessors and spiritual advisors for him. He needs the church alongside him. I am thankful that he has been able to appoint two pro-life Supreme Court justices. <clears throat> I ask you for more. I say the gates of hell will not prevail against the prayers of the saints of the Most High God. The gospel will prevail. The Lord will frustrate those who oppose him and his plans, and the church will experience victory after victory. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> One thing to realize is we're not just talking about the Supreme Court, but in the federal judiciary, <clears throat> as of a, as of this morning, um, uscourts.gov lists all of the vacancies in the federal judiciary. There are currently 143 vacant spots in the judiciary. We've got 70, 70 people can, are uh, nominated to fill those seats. So there are 73 that haven't been even been nominated yet. But we need to be praying that those 70 that have been and the 73 that still need to be appointed will be confirmed. Maybe we should just take a few minutes and just, if God gives you something to pray, feel free to come up here and grab a mic. But Father, we do ask for President Trump, <coughs> Vice President Pence, those who advise them about Supreme Court nominations and other federal court judicial nominations, to be able to move this process forward, that these other 73 people will be nominated. And God, we ask for the Senate to confirm these judges quickly. This could shift the direction of our country from one of godliness, godlessness to returning to biblical principles that honor you. So, Father, forgive us for ever being partisan and promoting one party over another when it's your principles that we're concerned about. It's your kingdom that we want to advance. So we ask for this, Lord. For your name's sake, for your kingdom's sake. Amen.
I want to share some things with you this morning that are a response to <clears throat> Terry Bennett's recent conference. Um, December 14th through 16th, Terry led a, a conference called Inward Preparation for Difficult Times. The session's a little long, <clears throat> usually two, three hours, but um, it's worth watching. If you'd like to do that, you can watch it on his website, which is messengersofshiloh.com or on youtube.com. I just picked out a few things that Terry said <clears throat> in this conference. And if you don't recall this about Terry Bennett, <clears throat> Jay has said, that he believes, more than any other man he knows, Terry Bennett is a true prophet of God. So, Jay's met Terry. <coughs> Terry's actually prophesied to Jay. Um, so I have to believe that Jay knows what he's talking about. But Terry asked the question, how did we get to such a wayward place? And to answer that question, he quoted the Apostle Paul's prophecy in 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. So I'd like to read that to you from the New King James. It says, But know this, that in the last days perilous or dangerous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, which is another word for proud, arrogant, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. I thought the Passion Translation was interesting. It says, but you need to be aware that in the final days, the culture of society will become extremely fierce and difficult for the people of God. People will be self-centered lovers of themselves and obsessed with money. They will boast of great things as they strut around in their arrogant pride and mock all that is right. They will ignore their own families. They will be ungrateful and ungodly. They will become addicted to hateful and malicious slander. Slaves to their desires, they will be ferocious belligerent haters of what is good and right. With brutal treachery, they will act without restraint, bigoted and wrapped in clouds of their conceit. They will find their delight in the pleasures of this world more than the pleasures of the loving God. They may pretend to have a respect for God, but in reality, they want nothing to do with God's power. Stay away from people like these. We see this kind of behavior 
all around us today. But it's most alarming when we see it in the churches. Living to please ourselves is in direct opposition to what Jesus taught us in Luke 9, 23 to 24. Jesus said then, he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. During the American Revolution, a frequently used phrase was, We have no king but Jesus. If you read the Declaration of Independence, and you see the 27 grievances that the, the five men who wrote the Declaration and the Constitutional Convention, I'm sorry, the Continental Congress had, their concern was that the King of Great Britain was becoming a tyrant. That he was apparently trying to impose upon America absolute despotism. So that's why they chose to do what they did. And why they said, we have no king but Jesus. However, today, the attitude is too often, I have no king but me. No one is going to tell me what to do. I'm my own boss. Well, I would suggest to you that we can see the devastation that that has brought into our culture. Another issue that Terry mentioned is pursuing the blessings of God rather than God himself. This is another manifestation of the self-centered attitude that's so prevalent today. Jesus is preparing a bride for himself. And his bride loves him rather than what he can do for her. So how about us? What are we seeking? And I thought of kids who are so excited at Christmas time about all the gifts that they're getting. Well, I don't have a problem with giving gifts and having kids be excited. But it would be nice to have at least a thank you, if not a hug, right? What are we seeking? Terry also talked about building ministries or churches focusing on the outward things rather than the kingdom of God. Jesus told us in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is within you. So when we see church leaders going after big buildings, big budgets, large numbers of people, but not truly making disciples, what are we seeking? The rule and reign of King Jesus in our hearts is what he is seeking.
In addition to what Terry said, I believe there's another reason we're headed toward dangerous times. I meant to bring it, but I there's a book that I've recently been reading called This Precarious Moment. It's written by James Garlow and David Barton. <clears throat> and I'm quoting from that book. George Barna has spent the last several years polling within the church, asking pastors and Christians questions about where they stand on quintessential biblical teachings and Christian beliefs such as these. By the way, I thought about quizzing you guys and see what answers you'd give. But I think I know, because I think you've been well taught. But here are the questions. <clears throat> Is the Bible accurate in all the principles it teaches? Yes. Does absolute moral truth exist? Some things are always right. Some things are always wrong. Did Jesus live a sinless life on earth? Well, I sure hope so, because if he did, we might as well go home. I mean, if, if he didn't live a sinless life, he cannot be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. That's right. Can people earn their way into heaven by doing good works? Is Satan a real or imaginary being? Is God the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today? You guys pass. These are some of the most basic teachings of the Bible, but Barna found more than 70% of the 384,000 churches in America today rejected such elementary Christian tenets. Did you get that? More than 70% of the 384,000 churches in this country rejected those teachings. Now, what I'm about to tell you does not come from David Barton, James Garlow, or George Barna. But I would say that those who reject these clear teachings of the Bible are heretics and apostate. That means 70% of the churches in this country are heretical and apostate. Now, the point here is not to call false teachers and false shepherds names, but to discern between what is true biblical teaching versus dangerous heresy. See, if you believe the wrong thing about those questions, and those are just six, but if you believe the wrong things about those things, your, your soul is in eternal danger. We don't need to attack individuals who are misleading their followers, but rather understand that what they are teaching is deception in order not to be deceived ourselves. I'll say this too. I think many of us in this room are mature enough that we have influence with people and we have a responsibility to teach the truth it may not be from a pulpit, it may not be publicly, but in private conversation, when we see people who are believing these lies of the enemy, we have a responsibility to them, if we care about their eternal soul, to tell them the truth. 
Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26 says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God, perhaps, will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Now the larger point that I'm really trying to make is that the falling away that Paul prophesied in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Remember that one? The falling away must come first before the man of sin is revealed. That's happened. The falling away has already happened. Right in the middle of it. It may get worse, but it's happened. Now going back to the, this precarious moment, <clears throat> Barnett describes the 100,000 or so remaining churches that still embrace these teachings, teachings rather, as theologically conservative. He then spent time polling within this group, and the results are very disturbing, to say the least. On the good side, more than 90% of these theologically conservative pastors, about 100,000 of them, agree the Bible addresses specific issues facing Christians today, such as abortion, same-sex marriage, gambling, immigration, and so forth. But, on the bad side, only 10% of these pastors are willing to address these issues that they admit the Bible addresses. Jude, verse 3, tells us to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So we must contend, not compromise. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 56.10, said his watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Who were the watchmen? I believe all of us in this room. That's not true of every church, because many churches have people coming to them that don't even know the Lord, let alone have any maturity in Him. But it's at least talking to the pastors, the shepherds. Because unfortunately, I think this passage in Isaiah 56 is an accurate description of many spiritual leaders today. Few leaders of churches have the spiritual vision to see the battle we are in. Many don't even want to see. And as the statistics from George Barnes show, over 70% of today's church leaders are either ignorant of the scriptures or have willingly rejected them. Another stat that comes to mind, over 50% Judging by what I just read, I'd say over 70% of pastors in this country don't have a biblical worldview. 
They don't know what the Bible teaches. Either that or they, they've seen it. But they say that's not true. Isaiah's reference to dumb dogs, which cannot bark, refers to a primary function of a watchdog. When a good watchdog sees danger approaching, what does he do? He barks, right? But many leaders of today's churches refuse to bark. They are not faithful to their calling as watchmen who boldly speak against dangerous ideas or practices and culture. Preachers must preach the whole counsel of God rather than compromising because we fear losing members, finances, or approval within the community. We're to fear God, not man. We're to please God, not men. Now, because of the things we've just said, Terry Bennett says this. Terry Bennett said that the Lord told him, Quote, severe discipline is decreed for your nation. Severe discipline is decreed for your nation. Terry also said the church is going to be shaken. Judgment is going to begin in this nation with us. And when he said us, I know he's referring to the church. Discipline and sifting are coming to this nation. Without it, there's no hope for the nation. Now, why would Terry say that without judgment, discipline, and shaking of the church, there is no hope for the nation? Let me give you a quote from Charles Finney. He was one of the primary instruments God used during the Second Great Awakening. And writing to pastors, he said this, If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, which apparently it is, if the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, which is where we are, the pulpit is responsible for it. Let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay it to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. As Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So God intends that his church influence our nation for good. But if the church continues in its current condition, we will not have any positive impact on our nation. And for that reason, there will be no hope for this nation. Again, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. We're to influence everybody around us.
I believe a sifting and shaking are coming to America which are intended to strip away our dependence on anything or anyone except the persons of the Holy Trinity. So in light of these troubling messages, how do we respond? First of all, John chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus encouraged his disciples by saying, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. So during the difficult times that are coming, the Lord does not want us to stumble. So I'm praying that the, this message today will give you the ability to stand firm in your faith and walk in a deep and intimate fellowship with all three persons of our triune God. So what do we need to do? Well, Jesus gave us some vitally important instruction in Luke 6, 47 to 49, when he said, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings or words and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now Jesus gave us three steps here to build the foundations of our lives. What did he say? First of all, we must come to Jesus and then hear his words and then do them. But the tragedy of American Christianity is that we have fallen into the same trap as the Jews Jesus spoke to in John chapter 5 where he says in verses 39 to 40, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me but you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. Many people in today's churches think that either having an intellectual understanding of or giving a mental assent to the scriptures will give them eternal life. But Jesus made it clear that if we are to have his life, we must come to him. Now what does that involve? Well, Hebrews 11.6 tells us that he who comes to God must believe that he is. He is. That's present tense. Coming to God involves much more than believing that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. It's much more than learning about what he did and said while he was here on earth. A belief in the historical Jesus is not the same as coming to the living Christ in a person-to-person -person interaction. We have been deceived into thinking, not us here perhaps, I don't think we are, but many in the church today have been deceived into thinking that if we understand what the Bible teaches about how we can be saved, then we are saved. Do you see the distinction? 
But the Bible is like a menu in a restaurant. No matter how much you read the menu, your hunger will not be satisfied until you place your order and eat. That's why Psalm 34, 8 tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now Jesus did say in John 5:39 that the scriptures testify of him that we will not be satisfied with knowing truths about him. We must know him. In John 17:3, Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The Amplified Version of Philippians 3.10 helps us understand what the word know means. And I'm quoting from the Amplified. It says, For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. But you see, knowing truths about him and knowing him are not the same. We must go on from knowing truths about him to knowing him who is the truth. In John 14:6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. When we come to the living Christ, he will give us his life as he comes into us and lives his life through us. Now, once we've come to him and received his life, <clears throat> Jesus said we would be able to hear his word. In John 8:47, Jesus said, He who is of God hears God's words. In John 10, 10 27, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. However, hearing what he is saying, and hearing what he is saying is not enough to build the foundation of our lives. Jesus said we must do what he said. See, another common misconception, another common deception in the church today is that the goal of our personal study of the Bible or the teaching that we receive from spiritual leaders is to understand what the Bible says. Now that's true. We need to understand what the Bible says. However, James told us in James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So if I don't do what the Bible tells me to do, if I don't do what the Holy Spirit prompts me to do, I'm deceiving myself. And Hebrews 3, 7 and 8 warn us that failing to obey what the Holy Spirit shows us to do leads to a hardened and deceived heart. Now Jesus also said that we'll build our lives on the rock rather than sand. So what's the rock? Psalm 95, 1 says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And 1 Corinthians 10, 4 tells us that rock was Christ himself. 
Now, <clears throat> we've looked at Luke 6, 47 to 49 about building a strong foundation. But just before Jesus told us how to build a solid foundation, he asked a question in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? we throw that word Lord around a little too loosely. Coming to Jesus and surrendering to Him as Lord becomes reality in our lives as we come to Him daily, hear His word, and obey it. The Lord Jesus Himself promised us that if we do that, we would build an unshakable foundation. It would enable us to stand firm in the storms of life. So when the times come, the difficult times come, if we've done these things, if we've come to Him, heard His Word and done it, and built our life on Him, we can endure. Now that's on a personal level. Here in Luke 6, 46-49, Jesus was speaking to individual people. But we need to understand that what Jesus said to people individually also applies to cultures and nations. If a people will come to him, hear his word and obey it, their culture and their nation will be built on a sure foundation which will not be shaken. Now some may wonder, what gives Jesus Christ the right to expect that every person on the planet will submit to him as Lord and obey him? The answer to that question is rooted in who he is. His authority to expect cultures and nations to submit to him is also rooted in who he is. You see, the prevalent view of God in today's church is one that we have become comfortable with. It's been reduced to one that we're comfortable with. We've emphasized the servant role of Jesus and his mercy and grace towards sinners, while neglecting the truth that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, the king of kings and lord of lords, the lord of the whole earth and the lord of all the earth. Those are all direct quotes from Scripture describing who God is. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We've also emphasized the fatherhood of God and his great love for every person in the world. We've grown comfortable with with calling him Abba or Daddy. Those are good things, right? He is Abba. He does love every person. 
But we've neglected the clear teaching in the Bible that God is the king of all the earth and the righteous judge of all the earth. Revelation 19.6 declares the Lord God omnipotent reigns. In Daniel chapter 4, there's an interesting little phrase. It appears three times. The phrase is, the most high rules in the kingdom of men. But today's church doesn't want to teach that. We want to teach, well, Jesus is your best buddy. Benjamin Franklin, who signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, said it this way. <clears throat> God governs in the affairs of men. Rufus King was a signer of the Constitution. And he wrote this. The law established by the Creator extends over the whole globe, all the earth is everywhere and at all times binding upon mankind. Now that's perhaps not the easiest language to understand, but when it says it's binding upon all man and mankind, it means we're supposed to obey the law of God. We're bound to do that. President George Washington wrote, It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. It's pretty clear to me that these founders believed that our nation was accountable to God's authority. about to close here. I'm going to just take a quick look at, at Jeremiah 18. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Now there are many in America today who would say, No, there is no God. And even if there is, he's not powerful enough to remold America into what he wants. But the Lord's response to such people is in the latter part of that verse. Look! I almost get a picture of him, of the Lord grabbing people by the shirt and getting it right in their face and saying, Look! As the, clay, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. In other words, you may not want to admit it because of your arrogance and your pride, 
and your self-centeredness, but I do have the ability to correct and reshape you. Continuing in verse 7. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit. I would observe this. When our nation was founded, we were committed to godly principles in our culture. Christianity, biblical Christianity, was the foundation of this country. And we, at that time, I believe, would have heard the Lord saying, I will build you and plant you. But if that nation against whom... Okay. When we turn away from God, He relents of the good He intended to do. So one thing we need to know, we're dealing with Almighty God, the Most High, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And He's well able to destroy this nation if we don't repent and return to Him. But if we do turn from our evil ways, He promises that He will relent of the disaster He thought to bring upon us. Do you guys see what's happening in our culture today? Do you see the disaster we're experiencing? All the strife and the turmoil and the conflict. When we turn away from God, who gives us the ability to love other people, to lay down our lives for other people, to care for people, and we become self-centered, selfish, don't really care about anybody but ourselves. You get what we have. So how will we respond to all this? Will we turn from our selfish and self-centered lives and allow Christ within us to live through us? I think I thank God that as I look around this room, I see people who have said, yes, I will do that. I will turn away from self and toward Christ and allow him to live in and through me. Will we come to Jesus, hear his word, and obey it? Now, if I'm going to be honest with you, I have to tell you, there are times I don't want to hear his word and obey it because it conflicts with what my flesh wants. 
And there's a crucifixion of the flesh that's ongoing for all of us. When we base our lives on Jesus, our rock, and our precious cornerstone, if we do, the Lord Jesus Christ will make us more than conquerors and cause us to stand firm in our faith because we've built our lives on Him. And He will bring us through whatever storms we face. It's up to Him. If we respond with a yes, I will follow you. Yes, I will obey you. He's got it under control. So, Father, we thank you for the word. It shows us the path to walk on. And Lord, we ask for your grace. To say no to ungodliness. To say no to the flesh. To say yes to you. Father, I thank you that we're part of a body here that wants to follow you. God, give us the ability impressed to share that word that Jay got recently for next year. It's the word change. We don't have a lot of clarity about what that means, but I encourage us all to seek God about what it is. How does he want us individually to change? What does he want to change in our marriages? It begins there. And if we seek him and ask him that question, he'll show us. He'll also show us what the change for the church is. You know, and it's not all about us. What does God want to do in Cheyenne? What does God want to do in Wyoming? I'll just remind you that both at the state and national levels, our governmental leaders who've just been elected are going to be taking office next week. So we're having change. But we need to pray that God's change will come. Because not all of what happened in that election was of God. So, Father, we commit ourselves to seeking you for what you want to do this year.